This is NBR's Live from the Hive, a compilation of the week's top stories straight out of the beehive. Do you have something to add? Head over to nbr.co.nz and join the discussion. This is Beehive Banter. And my goodness, there's been an awful lot of bantering going on in the beehive. In fact, by last count, I reckon there were 12 banters. Oh, oh no, sorry, wait. <laughs> sorry, I'm getting confused with the number of times the now former transport minister told the cabinet office he would divest his Auckland airport shares. Silly old me. So, about every eight weeks or so, the PM is either sacked, stood down, or been sideswiped by one of his MPs. Let's see, Stuart Nash, Mecca Fighteri, Kerry Allen, Antonetti this week. Michael Woods and Brent Edwards, our man of politics. You just have to shake your head in disbelief, don't you? Look, it's almost inexplicable. And in fact, Michael Wood, when he's been questioned on it, can't explain why he did. And But, you know, the Cabinet manual's really clear about conflicts of interest and perceived conflicts of interest. He should know he's been a whip. Yep, and it's very clear about um, whether, when you've got a pecuniary interest, i.e., own shares. And it basically says you shouldn't own shares directly. If you want to get rid of it, then put them into a some sort of managed fund where you don't know what the shares are and how they're going and all of that sort of stuff. And in this case, as you said in the introduction, 12 times over a couple of years, the Cabinet Office contacted Michael Wood about these shares that he owned, and he did nothing. Here's, I'm going to show you something. Here's literally how easy it is to sell shares. Ring, ring. Hello, broker. Sell my Auckland Airport shares? Great, thanks. Bye. 20 minutes later, you get an email saying, sold for this price. There you go. Yeah, but I'm too busy to do that because I'm a minister. <laughs> but, but actually, that, that's the other thing. He's put this down to, you know, he couldn't oh. deal with life admin. But actually... Sorry, this, one or two of those, no, yeah, no, but no, not no. 12. But this matter, this matter was not life admin. This was a ministerial matter because... In the cabinet manual, it makes it very clear about, and if if you do have these conflicts, then you meant to remove yourself from cabinet discussions and votes on issues. And of course, he's the minister. I mean, no one is actually, I think, suggesting that he's really, oh, really, no, they're not. really done this to make a whole lot of money because it's thirteen thousand dollars and he's earning, I don't know, no, no one's suggesting that. But all of the perceptions are around: did this influence decision making? How is this not as bad as Stuart Nash? Um, well, it's it's getting as bad as Stuart Nash because you keep on having um, further stories come out, and now we've had the fact that um, the the newsroom um, editor Jonathan Milne has um, put out a story saying that he actually asked uh, Michael Wood in 2021, a year in which Michael Wood had not declared these shares as part of his um, declaration as an MP on their um, declaration of pecuniary interests, whether he had anything else to declare. And Michael Wood said none. Then a year later, he did put these shares on the parliamentary register. But now, of course, there's an investigation into that because for a number of years he had not declared them as he should have done as an MP. If the Prime Minister had some other competent ministers who weren't already carrying multiple levels of responsibility and he could actually find a new transport minister, would he be gone already? Uh, I don't know, but to be, it is getting to the point where you just think the position is untenable for Michael Wood as a minister. Well, who who and would he appoint as new transport minister? Name well, someone. Well, it's not it's not a matter of appointing a new transport minister. It's a matter of appointing a new minister 
yeah. to cabinet. So, because okay. um, I, I think ev- even if he held on to Michael Wood in his cabinet, I do not believe he can give him back transport. Uh, has he just put that decision off by uh, announcing that former parliamentary inquiry that's underway that's been launched? Well, that, that's an inquiry that the um, Register of the Pecuniary Interest decides on rather than the Prime Minister. Right, so, so there's no sway or so anything. He, that they, there's he, no... he, might, he might argue that he'll wait for that inquiry before... But I think there's enough evidence now of, of all of these mistakes having been made. If it was just one simple oversight, you could say, oh, fair enough, busy yeah. minister. But it's not. It, no. I mean, and it just keeps on bolding up. So they're going to, I mean, the National Party views this, of course, uh, you know, if they've been running the line about coalition of chaos and say so they put this up as another and, you know, we've got this long line of stuff now. It's like almost a... What's a, multiple chaos? A walk of shame, <laughs> you know, Stuart Nash, Mecca yeah, Fateri, yeah. Kiri Allen, yeah. Jan Tanetti, yeah. Michael Wood. Yeah. Um, it's, I think, that, um, you know, I thought that maybe Jacinda Ardern, you know, it wasn't that she'd, you know, run out of petrol in the tank, it was just that she knew all this rubbish was coming and she didn't want to deal with it. Yeah. And poor old Chris Hipkins, I mean, he must be te- he must be absolutely fuming at the actions of a number of his ministers. Well, in one of the interviews earlier this week when asked, will he still be minister going to the election, there was a long pause and he was, a lot of umming and ahhing and all that kind of stuff. Um, and here's where I think it's also going to go into other other issues because uh, it's escalated into the Auckland Council. Who this week, you know, we're talking about the, the shares with checks on councillors and who held shares. There was there was three, I think, including one who had several million dollars worth. But three, they were three million. I think, but they were allowed to still take part in the vote. Is this could this have wide ranging ramifications and all sorts of decision making? Well, if you, if you think of um, go back to the the cabinet manual where it's it says basically you should remove yourself, divest yourself of kind of assets that might have a perceived conflict of interest. And this is where it might come back to bite the National Party having gone so strongly on Michael Wood because, you know, if we have a national-led government after the election and, for instance, they carry on with their policy around um, basically reversing the taxation changes... On landlords, yeah. government on land... Well, we know large numbers of them are landlords with investment (laughs) property. Now, are those people people in Cabinet going to be able to make that decision without being seen to be having at least a perceived conflict of interest where they will benefit from the decision they make? Only if they didn't say that they owned uh, a second property, if they did. Well, they've... But if they own second or third properties, and we know of, that doesn't remove the conflict of interest. Yeah, but look, if you took the, out all the, the conflicts, perception. there'd be no one left in Parliament. There'd be no, no decisions would be made. Oh, great idea. Could be a good thing. Well, you thing. could make them all. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Luxon says the wheels are falling off Labor. I'm going to put it to you this way, because I know what you'd normally say if I asked it a different way. In what ways are they not falling off? Oh... Look, it's not good. I mean, if, if, if you ask a political party that's in power in election year, would you like to, you know, have one minister have to resign or be sacked because of, you know, their conduct, Stuart Nash, have another minister defect to another party, have a couple of other ministers kind of do the wrong thing and get a bit of mm. a slap around the wrist, and then have this right. other minister really on the mm. brink of perhaps being sacked or resigning because of not following the cabinet manual. I mean, I'm not sure if the wheels are coming off, but hells, it doesn't do their election chances Um, any good. If you work it out, it's about every six weeks something goes booyah. How many more ministers will cause an embarrassment before the election? Because if you work out between now and the election, I reckon another four. (laughs) I know, and and I think 
Chris Hipkins after the Stuart Nash affair, I think it, it obviously <laughs> said to us ministers, come on, anyone got any other? <laughs> come on, who's next? And, I mean, it, yeah, I, yeah, I mean, they, as ministers are letting um, Hipkins down as Prime Minister, there's no doubt yes, about that. Yes, they are. Right, the Independent Panel's draft recommendations on improving our electoral system is out, lowering voting age. Polls indicate the vast majority of us don't want it, Brent. Yeah, yeah, I know. It was, it was interesting. It's um, about fairness, lowering the voting yeah. age. They've also about uh, lowering the threshold, party vote threshold to 3.5%. Yeah, but no coattailing. Um, no coattailing. But here, well, let me ask you this question then. Do we want another minor party, for example, I'll give you one, let's just say that the uh, conspiracy party got in because they lowered it down. Uh, do we want someone like the conspiracy party deciding who the government well, is? Well, you, you, you can't determine which parties make it in in that well, sense. The, the, the argument that no, the, but they can uh, determine the argument, who the government is. The argument that the review panel put up is that under current voting numbers, you know, to get 3.5%, a party would need to get up 100,000 votes. That's a fair chunk of votes. There'd be and another would, couple of parties would, in power if that had been the it, case. And it would get them four MPs into Parliament. So, look, those are the debates to be had. And that, and that, but I think the, the thing about it is I think it needs to be a much broader public debate. What we've had is the, had the political parties come out and sort of squash the idea from day one. Well, that's one. because they know the public don't want it. Well, no, I think it's because it doesn't suit them. Um, for your term, though, I think that's probably a good idea because at the end of the day, you know, you, you spend your first year getting your feet, you know, under the desk. Your sec second year, you know, deciding what you want to do. And by the time you get a legislation, and it's over. Yeah, but the com the review panel didn't come to a view on that. It just thought it was worth having well, a, it is. a referendum on. Yeah. Why don't we have a referendum on some of the other issues as well? Well, well we rather than le rather yeah. than rather than leaving it to the politicians to decide. Well, we should let prisoners vote. I mean, why shouldn't murderers, thieves, and general mischief makers have a say? Hey, eh? why shouldn't they? I'll tell you why. No, but in another program. Right to act again. They want a ministry of regulation, or should it be called Acts Ministry of Deregulation? to figure out what to get rid of before it obviously must get rid of itself. I, know that I find this rather <laughs> ironic. The party that's going to smash bureaucracy wants to set up another bureaucracy. Yeah. Well, yeah, but until it's got no bureaucracy left and then it has to get rid of itself. Yeah, I mean, I think, okay. that, I think that's just, it's, it kind of sounds nice, but I think it's it's not one of the most effective policies I've heard from the ACT Party. Uh, well, Nats do want something new as well. They want a new infrastructure agency with plans to introduce a value capture tax, which means uh, if the government basically build a railway station... Uh, uh, next to you, for example, the value of your house will go up, and they want part of that value. This has all been canvassed before. Why would they be, you know, well, prescription charges back on, relief for landlords, possible tax reduction, now a new tax? Well, they, and they were sceptical right about it. They were sceptical about that when the government raised it. A lot of what's in their policy actually is stuff that's kind of in train anyway. Like, you know, this idea of a pipeline plan, well, the Infrastructure Commission's working on that. Um, much, you know, there wasn't anything particularly new. I mean, apart from them arguing that they would just be much more efficient at delivering infrastructure than the current government is. Yeah, but I mean, this, this, you know, the boom discussions about the, next to the railway lines and your houses and all the rest of it, this is nothing new. It's just that they're going to do something about it. National's going to do something about it. Yes. Yeah. Yes, that's, yes. Recess next week. Bit of a breather for the PM, maybe. Well, you know, he's not going to have to go to Parliament and face questions about his minister. And it will, it, I suppose, give him the opportunity to um, make some serious decisions about that and, you know, how he, you know, and what, in what position does um, the government go back into the next parliamentary session, which you know starts the week after? Um, you know he's got a lot on his mind, and I think Michael Wood has too. I mean, he must be seriously considering his future and how to, you know, or how to save it. Well, yeah, and it might be that uh, resignation on his part would be the smart move at this point. Go to the back benches, you know, 
pulled out his puppet. Rehabilitate himself. Have you know, <laughs> come back when he's knows. That oh, I the, thought you meant the pub across no, the road from here. <laughs> re- come back when he knows those shares have been sold. And oh well, he should be back already. Um, I mean, who knows? By the time you get to, to watch this or listen to this, he could be gone anyway. Look, that is BI banter. Another unforgettable week of chaos and mayhem as the temperature keeps rising the closer we get to D-Day. You know, there's one journalist here that tweets every time someone either resigns or is sacked. She tweets, gone burger. It's happening so often, it's only a matter of time before McDonald's starts selling them. Speaking of food, time for Brent and I to go and have a snack, as usual. Thank you, Brent, and thank you for watching or listening. We do appreciate it. NBR are offering a free trial to newcomers. See what all the fuss is about on our flagship website, nbr.co.nz. As geopolitics and cybercrime converge, the risks to both governments and businesses get more serious. To talk about that, I'm joined by Levi Gundert from intelligence company Recorded Future. I mean... Obviously, we've we've known about cybercrime for quite a while now, but is it ramping up as artificial intelligence is kind of becoming so quickly advanced? Yeah, there's there's a couple of things happening. So, number one, I think crime, entrepreneurial crime, is sort of taking a much more uh, global perspective in terms of the opportunities and where countries like New Zealand, you know, maybe ten years ago didn't see as much in the cybercrime front. The advent of ransomware and you know some of the the criminal schemes have really been looking for broader monetization opportunities, and we see this sort of all over the world. You know, targeting of school districts, targeting of healthcare companies, where different schemes are being employed. Maybe they try to encrypt data and blackmail, or maybe they try to steal data, knowing that different regulatory regimes are in effect. And if they can steal PII, personally identifiable information, they can try to extort organizations into paying them, or they'll release that data publicly, and they know that that could cost them a regulatory fine because of a legal or compliance failure. So there's all kinds of criminal opportunities, and I think there is a new level of creativity happening here because of generative AI. And just what's happened in the last six months, I mean, the whole world has sort of changed in terms of the technology environment, and criminals are out in front doing research and development into how best leverage these new technologies. And I think one of the things that you've referred to is now the use of voice that, you know, maybe... Absolutely. I mean, you know, you get the scam calls at home at times, but it's quite clear it's a scam. That there's, That's you know, right. But the day someone rings you up that mm. you know yeah. and starts to put an offer to you, yeah. But in fact, it potentially could be just an AI. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, it's really incredible. And it's, to be honest with you, you know, I've been in intelligence 20 plus years, and it's, it's hard even for me to get my head around all the implications of, of AI and what it means. And really what we're seeing is a lot of research and development from criminals really around text, images, video, voice, and even code development. So... On the voice side, a lot of our clients are starting to see scams where somebody's calling and they're impersonating the CEO or the CFO, and the voice on the other end of the phone is the correct voice. You only need about three seconds of someone's voice to be able to clone it. So whether you're talking about consumer fraud, which is also happening to your point, or you're talking about fraud that's happening in the public or the private sector, 
we are seeing a lot of our clients being hit with that, and it is causing financial fraud on a, on a new scale. Well, how do businesses and, and I guess consumers, how, how do you counter that? I mean, if you get a phone call and it sounds like your boss right. and he tells you to do something. I mean, Pay the invoice, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's, it's really difficult. It's very challenging. And I think as an industry, we have an opportunity to rethink how we do education. And, you know, for the longest time, we've said when you receive that email and it, you know, contains grammatical errors or it just sounds off, then you know, you know you're probably dealing with a scam. That's no longer the case, right? The social engineering that we're gonna be hit with will no longer have grammatical mistakes in it. It's not going to sound off, right? We can say, you know, we need to write this email in a certain way and we're gonna use certain slang, you know, from Australia or from New Zealand or from the UK or the US to make sure that it's, it's spot on in terms of the impact. So. As a community within information security, we have to do a better job of starting to educate people. And obviously, you know, the, the private sector plays a role in that, government p plays a role in that, but it's gonna take some investment and it's, it's really going to take some thought on how best to do that because it's still early days and future applications of this technology, they're, they're, moving, so f they're moving so quickly uh, that without education, Criminals are always going to have this asymmetric speed advantage, and you know we have to try and blunt that. And I mean, obviously, businesses. I mean, they're all online. They can't go back from that. No. Yeah, that's <laughs> that. But that puts them at risk. It does. It really does. You know, we're we're talking about some of our clients. We're telling you know you really need to have a resource that's dedicated to understanding the developments in these technologies because it's it's happening so quickly and even week by week just trying to keep up. To your point, advances in voice, advances in video. You can imagine three to five years from now, or even less, you may be sitting in a Zoom call with your CEO, only it's not your CEO, right? It's an AI bot. So we really have to think about the technologies and the education, the training, and because it is early days, there's startups in the space that are trying to detect when something is generated by AI, but obviously we have a long way to go. I mean, how do I know you're not AI? I so, mean, I, I very well might be the digital synthetic representation of myself sitting here, right? <laughs> I mean, could it get to that point? I mean, you can imagine it, it would, right? In a, in a Zoom call or a Skype call, Skype. right, where you have 10 people on a call and the CEO is the last to join the call. Is it the CEO or the CFO? Or is it an AI representation of them, right? And What's, what's the clearest example you've had of something kind of close to that, if you like, that you're aware of? Well, I think, you know, it's very, it's relatively easy to create images and videos that are synthetic representations of people, and they're so lifelike, you, you really can't tell the difference. But I don't think we've seen wide-scale attacks yet with, with the video. We've seen political influence operations. We've seen trying to meddle in elections a little bit around the world. But for the most part, voice seems to be what's really effective right now. But we know, we know it's the video and, and the images. We know the velocity is going to increase. The tools are getting better. It's becoming easier and easier to generate. Well, we've got an election here later in the year. Absolutely. And we've already had a, a bit of a controversy over one of the major political parties using AI images as part of its advertising. Right. I mean, do you think there needs to be some clear rules around, you know, for instance, if you're related to elections around how political parties use or don't use AI? Should they use it? 
I think, you know, everyone's struggling with the balance here, right? Everyone wants to embrace the technology. They want to improve productivity, but they also want to be conscious of the privacy implications and the social engineering implications. And I think, you know, right now, to be honest, everyone's struggling with, you know, where is that happy medium um, and how do we do that effectively? And it's difficult to opine on, you know, where exactly you, you to fall in that spectrum. But I'll tell you, I write a personal blog and I use AI to generate all my images for that blog now. Uh, and so, you know, I'm trying to put a disclaimer out there. I just finished a, a second edition of a book and all the images are from AI. So we're putting a disclaimer that says, you know, all these images were generated by an, an AI engine. So I think that's a generally smart thing to do, just so people are aware. But I also think there's going to come a time where we're going to need better authentication for who's a human in general online. You know, as the cyber world mirrors the physical world, we need a better mechanism for understanding who's a human and who's a bot, right? And we're going to have to figure that out and develop that. But even to your point about the elections, we've seen election meddling going back, you know, to 2016 in social media. Only now the tools are getting better and better. And they don't even have to create the messaging. They just amplify the messaging already available in those social channels. And the, the speed and velocity at which they're doing that is sort of mind-boggling. Because, you know, we can see images on social media which create, and in fact, they're not real. That's I mean, right. so again, That's right. I mean, how, how do people manage to differentiate reality from what's made up? It's very difficult, and I think that's where it's on the public to do the education themselves and be discerning, you know, especially before they go to the polls and understanding what is real and what's not, you know, what can be validated and what's not, what comes from a primary news source, right, versus just something floating around on social media. And not everyone does that, right? So it's also incumbent, I think, on technology companies to try and help people understand that, hey, we have tools internally and we've detected that this was generated by AI. And I think that's also just part of being a responsible business that's engaged in public discourse these days. And so businesses need to do that, monitor it for AI. But I mean, and I guess for a very large corporate, they can mm -hmm. put in the resource to do that. Yeah. But what about small businesses? I mean, they obviously don't have the resource to, how do they manage? Yeah, I think, you know, if you're not a massive social media company, I think, you know, the best you can do right now is be open and transparent about where you are using AI. Right? And there's, there's nothing wrong with that. I think it's only going to help people understand some of the applications and uses of the technology. Levi Gundin, thank you for your time. Thank you for the opportunity to be here. Appreciate it. Ensuring infrastructure is resilient to climate change and climate friendly is one of the key challenges facing the country. KPMG International's Global Head of Infrastructure, Government and Healthcare, Richard Threlfall, is a keynote speaker at the Building Nations Conference in Christchurch this week, and he joins me now. Uh, well, welcome to the country, Richard. I know you've just flown in. Uh, how you. difficult is it to get that balance right with building infrastructure, um, I guess refurbishing in existing infrastructure so that it is climate resilient, but also... I guess, climate friendly? Sure. I mean, I guess we've always recognised that infrastructure is, it's the foundation of civilization. Everything that, you know, you and I and everyone in this country needs for quality of life is thanks to infrastructure. But I think it's only in the last couple of years that we've recognised that we've got this added challenge of it needing to be sustainable infrastructure that delivers sustainable quality of life on this planet. Um, and honestly, that's really raised the bar 
for governments all over the world around the level of investment that's needed. And, and you're quite right. We need to both um, ensure that all of the existing infrastructure we have is climate resilient, and we need to rapidly move the transformation um, of transport and energy and building in particular so that they're fully decarbonized. And that often means investing in new assets, for example, in wind farms uh, and solar panels and electric vehicles and so on. And honestly, I don't think there's any two ways around it. There just needs to be a lot more investment put in and in particular over the course of the next 10 years. So is it a question, of, if you like, or an issue of spending more now to save later? I think it's imperative that countries spend now to the absolute maximum extent they can. And if they could borrow as much as possible in order to allow more spend now, because let's put this in the context of the IPCC's report um, on the looming crisis that the world faces because of carbon emissions. So the latest um, view is that we are only under seven years away from the world's warming going one and a half degrees over pre-industrial levels, which doesn't sound like much, does it? But it's the point at which humanity is at risk of losing control. It's the point at which we start to lose the West, um, the Greenland ice sheet, the West Antarctic ice sheet, and so on. And I'm quite concerned, I'm more than quite concerned, I'm really worried that all of the ingenuity that humanity has might suddenly find that we can't actually reverse what's happening. So I really think there's, there's no choice but to drive a much, much greater pace. We cannot afford to just allow us to get to two degrees, three degrees or, or more of warming because the consequences will be absolutely catastrophic. I mean, we've already had um, pretty terrible weather events in this country this year, uh, flooding in our biggest city, Auckland, Cyclone Gabriel, which you know hit the top half of the North Island, particularly Hawke's Bay and the East Coast, uh, causing a lot of damage and a lot of now of work going into rebuilding infrastructure and the I guess the government's mantra is rebuild better. But presumably in the United Kingdom, you, you've suffered these sorts of weather events too. I mean, and what's the response? I mean, everywhere in the world is suffering. Some countries are suffering much worse than others. Um, the flooding and the cyclone in uh, here in New Zealand was obviously particularly extreme and particularly awful for this country. Um, the UK, to be honest, has, has not suffered to the same extent. But if you look at the heat waves in India last year or the fires in uh, Australia and California, I mean, these are examples of the extremities of weather events that we're seeing around the world. And I, and I fear that the, the bad news is, but the serious message is it's only going to get worse. Um, and we could expect these weather events, the severity and the frequency of them to keep going up and up and up. And that that's going to be the case, even if overnight we could suddenly stop all of our carbon emissions, which we can't. So we're facing a world in which we have to increase dramatically the resilience of our assets, even if we're able to move at great pace in terms of decarbonisation. And so that comes back to my core point, which is we've just got to we've just got to wake up as a society and do a lot lot more than we're doing at the moment what what's the role of kpmg in this sort of stuff i mean what what role do you play um in in this i mean as a as a as a company and as business sure so so i i i take the view that um that kpmg and other organizations like us are 
sort of in a privileged position to make a really, really big difference because of the fact that we operate to support so many different clients across whole ecosystems of sectors. Um, and, and that means that we can help clients to, to be sort of transformation, if you like. Now, that's true across all of the different businesses we support in every sector. My particular responsibility sits in the in the infrastructure and the public sector space. Um, but that's where the majority of the challenge is, because if you look at energy, if you look at transport, if you look at buildings, those are responsible for about 80 percent um, of the world's carbon emissions today. Um, and so KPMG, for example, works with governments to help drive uh, policy changes. Uh, um, for example, we worked with the uh, uh, the Australian government to set them on the course for their energy decarbonisation a couple of years ago. Um, we work uh, with the agencies uh, of governments. For example, we've worked with uh, uh, national highways in the UK to set their net zero strategy. And 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 often we'll actually get involved in in taking those strategies into the implementation phase. I mean, you, you talk about the need for greater investment, and you know this is a debate here, but of course it always gets um, covered covered up by the, uh, the political arguments too around the level of public debt. Are you looking at, as you look around the world? Are governments um, prepared to spend the money they need, or are those sorts of political arguments holding governments back from investing as much as they need to? We we, we saw during the pandemic that when governments saw an existential threat to their societies, they were prepared to borrow whatever it took um, in order to try to both safeguard that society and then and then ultimately to help try and rebuild it. Um, I, I think the problem today is we still haven't quite got to the point of recognising just how much of a threat this is, because, of course, it's something that the consequences of it, notwithstanding things like the terrible flooding and cyclones here at the beginning of this year, most of the time, the, the recognition of just how serious and urgent this is, I don't think it's sunk into the level necessary for governments to really commit the resources. If you look across the world today, most governments are only investing something like three or four percent of their GDP in investments for the future. And, and my view is it's nothing, nothing like enough. And honestly, you know, our generation needs to become less selfish and spend less money on itself and more money on the future for our children. And when it comes to resilience, um, we're talking here, obviously, for instance, if you look at Hawke's Bay about the idea of managed retreat, where we just accept that there are some parts of the land you can't make safe for people and they can't live there anymore. Is that happening around the world too? And is that a, is that a kind of, I guess, a measured response to, to the threats of the impact of climate change? I think it's an inevitability that climate change is going to make increasing parts of the world uninhabitable. Um, and for the, for the most part, um, that is going to land in the sort of the equatorial strip um, and for the most part, it's therefore going to affect some of the poorest societies in the world. So this is one of the world's big challenges. And this is why we're seeing these big debates uh, at the, uh, at the uh, you know, at COP27 and no doubt carried into COP28 about the responsibility of developed rich countries to help support um, countries that have done very little uh, to contribute to the world's warming, but are going to be disproportionately affected by it. Um, and again, I think this is one of the big challenges of climate change that perhaps haven't really sunk in around the world, 
we're seeing these you know societal reactions to increasing levels of of migration um but when you find whole areas of the world become uninhabitable then that forced migration is only going to get greater and that's going to also put social pressures through our societies and again it's just i think a reason why we need a proper collective global response and governments properly lined up to do everything they possibly can so you're speaking at this conference this week so what's your message for new zealand so my, my message, firstly, is, well, as you'll have guessed from what I've said already, the urgency of this is just something that everybody has to grasp. Secondly, the message is um, that we need government to set a really, really clear direction and give uh, driving to net zero an absolute priority in order to bring, not just in order to bring the investment from government in, but also so all the other parts of the economy, all the businesses know exactly what it is that they're being asked to do so that everybody can sort of get behind that that clear message from government and that target for what a country is going to do. Um, another key message is really use technology and really use the the ability we have today to use digital platforms to drive this change a lot faster. We're very fortunate that we have that ability, which we wouldn't have had 20 years ago, to be able to get out of some of this mess by the application of of technology. Um, And lastly, it is to come up with a view on a sustainable funding and financing framework uh, so that you could effectively have a proper conversation with all the citizens of New Zealand about what is that balance between what we're going to spend on the consumption in today's society and what it is that we need to invest for the future. Richard Threlfall, thank you for your time. It's a pleasure. Thank you very much. Like what you're hearing? Join the discussion with our member subscribers at our website, nbr.co.nz. The independent panel's review of electoral law has already been dismissed by most political parties, so any substantive change is unlikely. To discuss, let's get to MBR's political editor, Brent Edwards. So Brent, what did the interim panel's report say? Yeah, well, this is the interim report, so the final report won't come out until November. But, I mean, you can clearly see the direction of travel, though. So, I mean, it made a range of recommendations, lower the voting age, to 16, allow all prisoners to vote, um, have a referendum on extending um, the parliamentary term to four years. So, so it didn't come to a view on that. It didn't say it should be, but it said it should go to a public referendum. Um, on party financing, a um, lot more restrictions and also transparency. So restrict um, political donations to registered voters, so only People who are registered voters can make donations. That would cut out companies, unions and others from donating and put a limit of $30,000 in any electoral term. So over three years, as we have at the moment, a person could only donate $30,000 to the party of their choice. So obviously that, you know, in their argument, would take big money out of the electoral process. And there's been a lot of opposition. Yeah, look, already, I mean, we've seen the the political parties, um, certainly both uh, National and ACT have come out pretty strongly against pretty much all the recommendations, although David Seymour does support the idea of a referendum for a four-year term. Uh, Labor, um, the Prime Minister, Chris Hipkins, has basically said no to, you know, the lowering the voting age. We already knew that. There's not a majority in Parliament for that. And, 
it's you know which makes you wonder you know why bother setting up these um, review panels to do these reviews if you are going to dismiss them uh, from the very start. And you know, and the point you know I'd make is that um, the electoral system actually is is the voters' property, if you like, and it, not the political parties. They have a vested interest in maintaining however they think it might work for them. Um, but it, you know, it would be good just for actually the political parties to shut up for the moment and allow a public debate to go on about these measures. And maybe you know the political parties could then perhaps listen to what the public are saying about what they would like to see happen. So what would you like them to shut up about? Well, everything. I mean, I mean, let you know, let's let's have let's let's have the public a public broad public debate, um, because effectively what they've done has shut the debate down. Because frankly, from the public's perspective, what's the point really of engaging when you know that the significant number of the political parties, the parties that have a majority in Parliament, have said no already. Um, so nothing, nothing much will change apart from perhaps, you know, having a referendum on the raising the. But maybe a way of dealing it with is that we should have a series of referenda on those significant proposals from the panel, uh, rather than having Parliament decide. And I mean, the Green Party is the one party that's come out in support. But kind of equally, though, they they meet. You know, David Seymour says this is a left-wing agenda. It's all about you know making sure that you you know he said that you'd ensure a centre-left government for a lifetime by doing this. And you know the Greens have talked about oh well it would allow young people to vote and they'll vote for the future and climate change. Therefore, clearly seeing it. But actually, the political parties' interests shouldn't um, be an issue here. It it is an issue about saying well what is the fairest way to have an electoral system? An electoral system which um, you know, promotes inclusiveness, if you like, that you encourage and make it as easy and as accessible as possible for people to vote. In a liberal democracy, you don't you presume that's what we would want. Would they have this type of response outside of an election year? Oh, yeah. Look, I I think they would. An election year um, probably just heightens that sense of thinking about well, what does it mean for them in terms of their support bases or not. But I mean, I think you know they've always you know this debate. The voting age has always been one that's, you know, and that, that's an arguable, debatable point as to whether where the voting age should be, whether it should stay at 18 or come to 16. Um, people put up a number of spurious arguments about why you wouldn't lower the voting age, and some put up spurious arguments about mm. why you would lower it. So, but you know, there, there should be a broader debate and a deeper look at those sorts of issues, including around the issue of um, political party financing. In one sense, you could argue, say, for instance, the opposition from National and Act seems to imply that they don't believe they could win elections if young people were allowed to vote and nor that they could raise any money if they couldn't get large, large donations from very wealthy people, um, which are kind of almost like an admission of defeat. And, and I don't necessarily think that's the case. I mean, I think the parties could actually still raise quite a lot of money through, you know, more smaller donations. And, you know, why the argument that they couldn't potentially win the support of young voters um, as well? So we should see more protests out the front here calling on the voting age to lower, even though it's been dismissed? Um, well, I, yeah, I mean, I think probably that campaign make it 16, I think, uh, uh, are not going to go away. So I presume they'll... And they've obviously made comments about this too. They obviously welcomed the, the report. And, um, and the only thing is, I suppose, it, it lifts their expectations. And I think those expectations are inevitably going to be dashed because... 
the Parliament as it's configured at the moment is just simply not going to agree to lower the age. Brent Edwards, thank you. A new tax bill introduced under urgency as part of Budget Day legislation aims to set some principles against which the tax system should be regularly reviewed. Sounds innocent enough, but MBR columnist Bridget Morton is not so sure, and she joins me now. Well, first, I don't think you like the fact it was introduced under urgency, do you? Well, I think urgency should be carefully used, and there is no need for a bill like this to be introduced under urgency. I think that just showed poor planning on behalf of the minister and the government rather than actual need. And I think Budget Day in particular, because there's so much else going on, most people aren't paying attention to something like this. Well, actually, I mean, and the argument for the bill is supposedly to help make the public more aware of the tax system, and yet it is, as you say, being rushed, public's not going to have much opportunity to have a say on it. I think the um, submissions close in a day or two and then it's due to be reported back only um, in July. Um, and actually it, it comes into effect from July 1 and the, the first report's meant to be done by the end of this year. I know. The timing is quite ridiculous and why so much urgency on something like this when you've got a government that hasn't delivered on so many other things. So the question is like why is this government, you know, why are they so focused on doing it? And to be honest, I can't tell you the answer. There seems to be a little bit that David Parker, you know, he's sort of a bit of the thinker of the building, you know, that mm. these are kind of things, the reform that he's wanted to do. And he's kind of run out of runway a little bit so he's clearly got a concession to kind of get this one pushed through that seems the only reason to do something like this because I think if you're actually dedicated to doing this and doing it well you would get bipartisan support it would need to become part of the kind of framework of our sort of reporting functions kind of like our fiscal responsibility public finance act that type of thing because on the on the surface the idea that you have this regular reporting function that you report back on the state of the tax system so the public get you know can look at it, I mean, obviously more likely tax experts would look at it rather than the, you, you know, but there's nothing particularly wrong with that, is there? It is, it is just that sort of fact that it's just being so rushed. That, and also the fact that I generally have a bit of an aversion to law when law's not really needed. There doesn't seem to be any indication that if you want this level of reporting from the IRD that you couldn't just ask for it as a minister. So the question is, why has this not been happening before? I think, second of all, I think there is actually a lot of things wrong with the bill itself. The first one is just that like, the principles that have been laid out. The example I refer to in the... Um, and my column is about horizontal equity, which there's differing and unsettled you know, definitions and none of them really match what is in the bill. And that's been raised by tax experts, by economists. So there's kind of some inherent issues there. If they don't believe in the worthwhile of kind of what those principles are, you're not really going to get the rest of the public on board. Well, Joe and Jane Bloggs are really going to love horizontal equity, aren't they? <laughs> well, look, it's whatever, mean, how, whatever election is one on is horizontal <laughs> equity. How, I mean, how do you make that stuff understandable anyway? Way to you know your average member of the public who's only really worried about how much tax they're paying. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think people are worried about or want to feel like that the people that are richer than them are paying more tax. They want to feel like somebody else is you know carrying the the bucket as well. These principles don't really tell you that. They will probably sort of tell you that essentially if you're earning money in a particular way, somebody else who also is earning money maybe in a slightly different way, how much tax they're paying. So that will you know have some resonance with some people. But it's going to, as you say, be in the depths of a report that most people are never going to see. I mean, you make reference in your column too to that study that Inran Revenue did on what high wealth, um, high net worth people were paying in tax. So do you think this reporting would perhaps be used by the Labor government anyways and other arguments to say, oh, well, we need to tax 
wealthier people more? Or? Yeah, there's an element of like, by the way that they've defined those principles and decided what principles in there, that they're kind of setting up the framework for what they think a fair tax system looks like. Remembering, of course, that fair is a completely subjective value. But ultimately, yes, I can totally see how they could use a report that came out of this bill to then create the platform for them to go around and say, we actually do need to you know, tax people um, on higher incomes. We do need to bring in a capital gains tax, all of that kind of stuff which once again goes to the heart of this bill, if the purpose of the bill is so that you can get your political agenda through, it's probably not appropriate that it's going through as legislation and trying to um, constrain future governments. And because it's being rushed, I mean, you, you would, I guess, imagine that some of the issues you raise, the problems you see in the bill, are unlikely to be resolved through the select committee process? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, it's basically those kind of issues are coming up quite consistently across your sort of Deloitte, your PwCs, you know, the people that deal in tax quite a lot. If there's not time to make those changes, which it doesn't seem to on the current time frame, you're going to end up with a not very useful bill that people don't actually rely on that report at all. Richard Morton, thank you for your time. And that's been this week's Live from the Hive. Thanks for listening.